Hey everyone, welcome into Great Quarter Guys live from the launch desk here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got my partner in crime, Seth Holm, with me. We've got an interesting show, right? This whole Space Waves is a milestone for Freight Waves. We're kind of expanding into a new vertical, but this is also a milestone show for the Great Quarter Guys. I don't know if you know, but this is our 50th show today. So a little milestone for the Great Quarter Guys. We're excited to be here and we're going to have a great show. We've got Ron Epstein coming on. He is a Bank of America analyst and researcher there. And he has one of the most bullish outlooks for Virgin Galactic, the only pure play space company available to public investors. So we're going to talk to him about the valuation, what he sees in Virgin Galactic, what he thinks of the value of the total space markets are. So that's going to come up after the break. Before that, Seth and I are going to do our normal uh, You Care or Nah segment, which is, of course, our ode to Dan Lebetard and Highly Questionable on ESPN, their see or no section. But this one is special as well. It's space only. So I've got four space uh, events or stories here for Seth and I to discuss whether we care or not and why. Seth, you ready? Ready. All right. So the first one is we've actually got another company coming to the public markets, another space pure play company. This one is Momentus. And this is the, the good quote that I read on Barron's. Barron's called them the FedEx of space. This, uh, this company is going to be available to public markers, public markets via a SPAC. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and it's going to be with Stable Road Acquisition Company sometime in the next few months. Seth, on the surface, do you care or not about Momentus coming to public markets? I do care, although after reading a page about this company, I'm not exactly clear on what it is they do. Something to do with last mile transportation and shuffling around things in space. It almost seemed like an LTL or an intermodal marketing company where they're basically renting space on SpaceX's rockets uh, to get stuff up there to space and then charging a fee for transporting it around. But, um, <laughs> it, you know, and then the other takeaway that you and I talked about is they have no revenue now. And, and like any other SPAC that you're seeing out there, uh, they're saying to investors, well, you know, because with the SPAC, instead of an S1 with an IPO, you have an S4, which is the, the SPAC prospectus, and you're allowed to make forward projections. And my understanding is they're projecting to go from zero in revenue this year to a billion dollars in revenue and 600 million in free cash flow in three years. So, um, you know, it, it's obviously going to be a very important company if they can pull that off. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an important company. They're obviously projecting big sales in the next few years. They have nothing yet. And this is something that I was thinking back to one of the conversations earlier in the day uh, with a guy that spoke with George. He talked to there's 2,000 companies. They're building this crunch base of, of space companies. And there's 2,000 companies in this, in this crunch base already, which is amazing to me. I don't know. I obviously know nothing about space because I can name about 10 companies that work in this industry. We're going to talk to Ron about a few of those. But I'm super excited about this. They do do last mile in space. So think of them as a, they have this kind of drone that attaches to satellites that gets inside of a rocket. So the rocket goes up, this drone detaches with a satellite and puts the satellite in its correct orbit, right? So they just kind of push it and put it in its correct place so that it doesn't hit other satellites. So that's, it's an important part that is that last mile, the SpaceX will get you to orbit, but you got to make sure that you're on an orbit path that is not going to crash into other uh, satellites and and anything else. So there's going to be a high demand for it. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens with the company. I'll probably be buying it soon. I think it's going to be cool. I'm going to be open to be open to any of the pure play space companies. And there's not very many, there's only one right now and that's Virgin Galactic. So the second news story I got for you is actually about Virgin Galactic. They are aiming for December 11th for the next test. Of, there's next, next test of suborbital flight with its Spaceship 2. The test mission will be the first human space flight to lift off from New Mexico. Seth, you care or not? 
Definitely care on this one. Um, I think it's a huge milestone for the company because the next thing after this, if they can pull it off, is what taking Richard Branson to space, right, in the first quarter of next year, which I think will, you know, very, very important for the company and the stock and all the shareholders. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, they need to be able to prove that this is a viable business and they're ready to get things going. Yeah, Ron's going to have a lot to say about this. He's going to tell us about the, the backlog of orders they've got. You know, 600 people have, have signed up to pay a quarter million dollars to go to space on this trip. I think there's going to be many more do it once they see the CEO and the founder of the company get on one of those things and actually take the risk of, of going up there. So, yeah, I'm really excited for this. This is just one more step to get us closer to seeing Sir Richard Branson uh, in outer space. It was supposed to happen this year. It kind of got delayed by the coronavirus and for other reasons. Uh, this is a company that's that's prone to delaying things as it comes with the territory. They're doing pretty difficult, pretty difficult stuff, but just comes to the territory. So I'm excited to see it uh, in here in the next week. All right. So the third one here is not about an American, uh, about American space exploration, but this one's actually about China. So China just landed its, I'm going to mispronounce this, but the Shang E5 spacecraft. It landed on the moon this week. And it had there's actually a great video online. If anybody hasn't seen it, they have this video from the bottom of the spacecraft kind of coming in and landing on the lunar surface. So uh, this is the first time that uh, lunar samples are, have been brought back from the moon, I think, in 44 years or something. I think it's the first it's definitely the first ones for China to bring back lunar uh, rocks. So, you know, I care about this one. I kind of foreshadowed that. But what about you, Seth? You care or not about the, the Shang-E 5 spacecraft landing on the moon? Yeah, it's, it seems kind of cool. I guess I care. Um, you know, what, what, what are those samples going to do for us, though, Andrew? Yeah, I'm not really sure. because, But there is, there is one thing here. Like in my conversation earlier with Sidney Doe, the NASA systems engineer, he says that we're still studying the rocks that we brought back 50 years ago. So I'm sure there's still something to learn, uh, especially from the Chinese scientists who haven't had their hands or haven't had as many hands on the rock samples as, as Americans and Europeans have. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what they're going to get to from it. Yeah. But interesting, nonetheless, uh, I, I don't think this isn't China's first foray into uh, onto the moon. They've had multiple landings there, but this is the first time they're bringing something back, bringing rock samples back with them. So uh, very interesting. All right. So the last one, this is a was a big surprise to me, but it should actually it shouldn't come as a surprise that Elon Musk is making outrageous predictions and and setting setting himself up for spectacular failures. But he's done it again. He said on Tuesday. So he won this award. He had a 20 minute conversation about the award and and kind of talked about SpaceX and Tesla. And one of the things that he said that caught a lot of attention is that he he said he's highly confident that he can get uh, a human a human Mars bound mission going in 2026, if not 2024 at the earliest. What's crazy about this is that all day we've been hearing from people at NASA and, and other people in the industry, and that number is not on anybody's radar. They're thinking more mid-2030. So that's kind of setting the stage here. But what do you think? you care or not that Musk says that he can get us there in 2026? Oh, yeah. You know I care. I mean, uh, he's always stretching the boundaries. Uh, you know, when you talk about actually getting someone to Mars, we're talking about with Virgin Galactic just getting someone to suborbital space. So getting someone to Mars, though, and I don't know if, whether this is a test flight or you know, commercial operate space tourism or, or what. But I know they've gotten to the International Space Station, but that, that would be a remarkable achievement. And yes, a lot of these companies, and it's not anything to do with space, you throw out aggressive targets and they can naturally get pushed back. But uh, that would be pretty exciting if, if we were going to Mars in five, year, five or six years from now. This is actually something I was just talking with one of our production crew about, Aaron. She was saying that, you know, the, the difference between SpaceX and NASA is that SpaceX doesn't have that many repercussions from setting these huge targets and then not making them. Whereas NASA has this, you know, it has a big weight on their shoulders that the, the, the media gets behind them and, and everybody's not on their side if they don't meet their target. So it actually makes way more sense for NASA to kind of stretch out uh, targets and, and not be so focused on getting there in six years. Make sure that it's 
that's right. Right, whereas SpaceX more so has to answer to their investors as a private company, but there's less scrutiny than there would be, uh, and, and, it, and it arguably drives up the valuation by through marketing and branding purposes. Uh, what's the latest valuation of SpaceX? Over $50 billion or Yeah, something? it's nuts, right? So I saw that uh, back in earlier this year, they were, they were valued at $36, $36 billion. And of course, it's a private company, so the valuations fluctuate. But then I, I had read somewhere that it had almost doubled uh, in the time since. So I think that the couple successful launches they've had this year have boosted that valuation significantly. Right. So just to put in context, uh, you know, probably the three most uh, companies that people are most familiar with are SpaceX, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's company, and Virgin Galactic. But Virgin Galactic's market cap is six billion, and mm-hmm. if SpaceX is about ten x, uh, ten times larger than that. Yeah, I have no idea on the value of Blue Origin. Have you read anything on it? I have no idea. I just know that um, you know Bezos sells a billion dollars in Amazon stock every year to fund it. Yeah, um, that's a you know I have no idea. Yeah, we're going to talk to Ron about that because that's something really interesting. The the different strategies that these companies employ to eventually do what they want to do, right? They, they it's like Amazon has or Be- Bezos has this cash cow in Amazon that he can that he can take money from and then pump it into his pet projects like Blue Origin, uh, and the same goes for Elon. And it's kind of a billionaire's playground. Uh, but Virgin Galactic is t- kind of taking an, an opposite. Uh, an opposite strategy there. They're going after the most difficult thing, which is the suborbital, uh, the suborbital travel to eventually fund supersonic travel here on Earth to, to kind of bring, go after that long range uh, travel, which is really interesting. Which, which is where a lot of the money may lay, and we'll, we'll touch on that later. Yeah, most definitely. So this is going to be a great show. We've got a couple minutes of commercials coming up here, and then we're going to have Dr. Ron Epstein on with us to discuss the value of space markets. We're going to talk about where the growth is going to come. He values them right now at roughly $400 billion, expecting that to triple over the next few years, over the next 10 years. So he'll be coming up right after the break. You guys stick with us. It's going to be an intriguing conversation. We're excited to have you here. Thanks. All right, everyone, welcome back. So now we've got Dr. Ron Epstein on the phone. We've got him, actually got him on video. He is the Managing Director in Equity Research at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, covering aerospace and defense companies, as well as multi in, multi-industrials with large aerospace components. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, you're fine. So, Seth, while we are waiting on Ron to get up and going, uh, what, what did we, we were... Okay. Well, nice Ron's back. back. So here we are, live, live podcasting for you. So, Ron, uh, when I was researching you, I came across your weekly guest spots on the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast, where they call you Rocket Ron. Can you tell me where you got that nickname? I presume it had something to do uh, with your background before you got to B of A. Yeah. So I, I've got a PhD in, in, um, in aerospace. Uh, I used to work at McDonnell Douglas uh, and the Boeing company. Uh, I, was a, I was a research engineer for, for a while. And, and this is a name that kind of just popped up at work one day. You know, there, there, I wish there was like a really clever, fun story behind it. But it's, it's just people started calling me that and it, and it stuck and people seem to like it. So it's uh, we've just kind of stuck with it over the years. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's fitting and, and I love it. So let's talk about the value of the space market. So start broad and then we'll eventually whittle our way down to Virgin Galactic, the only pure play company available to us right now. So B of A, we read your uh, your space primer. It was, it was very good. And you said that you value currently or you project the value of the space market to currently be about $400 billion, but are expecting that to triple over the next 10 years. What do you base that projection on? Yeah, so it was about $415 billion, to be precise, in 2018. Um, you know, we saw a lot, a lot more launches this year. If you look at the number of uh, launches that happened of space vehicles that actually got put in orbit, it was uh, almost double year over year. Um, so, you know, you're, you're probably closer to maybe in 2020, that number's uh, probably closer to $500 billion now. 
um, and we're uh, looking for 1.4 trillion, like you like you mentioned, by 2030. And then there's a couple components of that. Um, one, the biggest market so far still in space is the government spend, um, uh, and largely the Department of Defense. Um, uh, so we expect that to continue to grow. Um, that's still going to be a, a player. Um, the Department of Defense has been really clear about uh, things like you know, space-based sensors, um, hypersonics, and, and so on and so forth. So um, we, we expect that to continue. So you'll have a baseline a piece of growth there. But the real bigger piece of growth is going to come from commercial space. And you're already starting that, to see that, right? Uh, you know, Virgin Galactic, I think, is just an example. You guys mentioned earlier on the show, uh, you know, Momentus, you know, coming, coming to the market soon uh, through a SPAC. And there'll be others, others behind that. Um, and as you know, there's probably close to 30 to 40 companies working on some form of launch vehicle, little vehicles and big vehicles. There's at least that many number of companies working on small um, you know, satellites and, and other space sensors and, and space, you know, spacecraft, if you will, um, let alone you know, rovers and, and that kind of thing. So when, when you put all that together and you look at, you know, what, what the potential growth rates could be, uh, actually getting to um, uh, materially over a trillion dollars by the 2030s isn't that hard to do. Well, Ron, uh, I think you just touched on this a little bit, but um, right now of that, call it $500 billion, uh, about 90% of that is, uh, is satellites. Um, how do you expect that uh, sort of mix shift to change and, and what will those new components be uh, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm expecting to see growth out of uh, both pieces. Um, right. I mean, ultimately, you want to get to space because you want to deploy assets in space. And those assets will, you know, if you think about history, a lot of those assets has really been around space communications uh, and some space monitoring, you know, satellites, Intel satellites, that kind of thing. Um, but with the creation of small CubeSats and just lower cost satellites, it, you're, you can bring things to space now at a, at a level, um, a cost level that you just couldn't have dreamt of before. And that will open up opportunities for people to do things in space with spacecraft that they probably never dreamed of before. And honestly, it, it's hard to speculate exactly everything that's going to happen there. But just like you saw this year over last year, the number of spacecraft go up a lot. I, I expect to continue to see see that happen. Now, now bear in mind, a lot of that is I mean, spacecraft have been shrinking <laughs> as well, right? So, um, you know, if you look at maybe another interesting way to look at it would be the, the weight of uh, the vehicles put in space. Um, yeah, I mean that that probably hasn't gone up quite as much, right? Because you're 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 essentially, you know, taking these big bespoke satellites and chopping them up into smaller units. But um, you know, I expect to see a couple things, right? So one would be spacecraft. Two, just in and this is the thing I think that's you know fascinating now that you're you're seeing with what Momentus is the beginning of a cislunar economy, right? They'll be the first story, and I think this is an important point they're going to be generating revenue in space. They're not bringing things from space, from, you know, from you know, terrestrial Earth to space. Their business model is generating in space. So if you will, that last, that last mile delivery or however you want to describe it, that's all being done in space, refueling satellites, so on and so forth. And I think the thing that, about their business that's just very, very um, exciting is, is that, is they'll be you know, the first publicly traded cislunar company that's going to be generating the revenue, not on Earth, right? And so it just, you know, it kind of blows your mind a little bit, but that's the kind of things we're seeing happen. And it's all being, you know, uh, you're seeing a nexus of technology, investment, 
um, that are allowing this to all happen now, where you couldn't have dreamed to do this 20 years ago because you just didn't have the technology to do it. Yeah, I, uh, I hope the Robinhooders don't hear that statement there, that this is going to be the first cislunar, uh, the, the yeah. first company making revenue in space as a, as a, as a cislunar economy. Yeah, Robin Hood is going to run excited. He sounds pretty upbeat on Momentus. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we'll definitely, we'll come back to Momentus because there's a, a, a general question that I want to have here, and that's who's better suited for space markets? Is it established defense and aerospace companies, the Boeings, the Northrop Gummins, or is it these, these uh, you know, better, or, the, or is it the startups like Momentus and like SpaceX, or is there just plenty of room for both in this $1.4 trillion uh, economy? They're different, right? I mean, if you look at the traditional space players, and this is where I think you really have to, um, one of the remarkable things that, you know, Elon Musk did with SpaceX is they went into a domain that really was just the stuff of governments. And if you think about who, I mean, they do generate revenue. I mean, a lot of space companies don't. They generate a lot of revenue because they're putting things into orbit for the U.S. Air Force. I mean, they're already at work. They changed the business model, right? I mean, you know, in the past, the Air Force would buy a rocket. You'd have to go through a, a whole different process where now they're just going for a ride, right? I mean, they're, they're renting time. Um, you know, they're just paying for launches as opposed to paying for vehicles. Uh, so when you look at what SpaceX did, you know, to the point of your question, what SpaceX did was bring a whole new concept to the market that something that with all respect, a Lockheed or a Boeing, just, it, you know, I mean, let me reframe it this way. The United Launch Alliance came together because it was you know, two businesses, the Boeing space business and the Lockheed space business that they wanted to get out of. So they kind of put them together and sort of spun it out. And um, it wasn't uh, an important, I would say, revenue generator for the company, EBIT generator for either company. So it was a bit of an afterthought where you look at the new generation of companies this is what they do. This is their focus. This is their, you know, raison d'etre is, is, is this. So, I mean, ultimately, I do think there's room for both. Um, but, you know, it's, it, they're, they're, their approach is completely different. Yeah, Ron. So um, talking, you know, about Virgin Galactic, they've been around since, what, 2004. And I think I read they've put a cumulative about a billion dollars in CapEx and R&D into the company. Uh, you know, we've been talking about Momentus and we're going to talk about Virgin. It seems to me uh, both of those companies are on the cusp of revenue. Uh, if you're going to bring a space company public, whether via an IPO or a SPAC, uh, you know, what, what do you think investors are looking for and what do you think they care about in order to give uh, these companies to have successful uh, public entrances? Yeah, I think the management teams matter a lot honestly. So when you're bringing a company public, that's in you know, most cases, they're pre-revenue, right? I mean, they, they really haven't generated much revenue yet. Um, you need a really strong management team and a management team that investors can look at and say, okay, all right. Yeah. These, these guys can probably do this. Um, you know, and there's always risk of course, but I think the management team matters a lot. One, two, that the business case itself seems plausible. Right, so when you, when you look at what Virgin Galactic's doing, you know, a a a person, a group of people paying two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a ride to to you know low Earth orbit, um, sure. I mean, people pay a, a a not so small fraction of that to go climb Everest, right? So when you think about experiential things, is there a group of people that would do it? Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier on the show, so you've got six hundred folks who've already put down deposits to do that. 
And then they have a, this program called One Small Step, where they're taking smaller deposits from a yet undisclosed number of, of folks that, that want to do it. So, um, so a business case that's not just plausible, but probable, and a management team that you can believe in that can, yeah, okay, these guys can really do this. You, get, you seem like you started to get on the path of your bull case for Virgin Galactic there. Let's let's just go ahead and lay it out. You're one of the most bullish analysts on Virgin Galactic that, that I've read. Let's uh, give us your bull case for the company over the next few years. Yeah, right. So it's you know, for the near term, the, the valuation of the company is going to be driven by catalysts, right? So the next catalyst is this next launch. And then we're going to have a launch after that, probably sometime early next year, where Richard Branson and some other folks will, will be on that, and that'll be the first commercial launch. Um, you know, if those go successfully, and they probably will, um, then they start going into their launch services. And I think what you're going to see happen is with each one of those catalysts, you'll get more people say, okay, yeah, they're really, they're really doing this. And then the next question will be a little bit longer term, longer term meaning just maybe a year or two after that. You know, so let's say things more or less go to schedule, 2022 is probably a bit of a transition year. When you get out to 2023, are they generating cash doing this? Is the business model working? And then that's kind of the, the next leg up from there. If you look at how they've positioned themselves, uh, you know, it's, what's, what's fascinating about them, and not to sort of kind of go way back in history, but if you look at what, what they've done, they're vertically integrated, right? So in a sense, they're the airline who makes their own engine and builds their own plane, right? Well, if you go back in time, that was United Airlines, United Technologies, and the Boeing company, right? They, they, it was all one thing at one point. Uh, and then, you know, eventually they got broken up. You know, that's who they are now for, for space travel. Um, so, yes, yes, I am bullish on it because I do believe it'll work. Um, there's you know, for sure uh, interest in it. Um, it's just, I think, as an investment, you just have to be cognizant that it's highly volatile because you're, very early stage at this point. So, you know, people get very, you know, investors get very sensitive around headlines and this and that. Um, but yes, uh, that, so that's what it's based on. When we do our valuations on the company, um, you know, how do you value a company that's, you know, this early? You, you have to go through a couple different scenarios. So we have you know, a, a bear case, a base case, and a, and a bull case. And our bear case assumes that, you know, they, they do get the, the, the space tourism business going, but it does just okay. And they don't ever do the supersonic transport business. You don't ever, you don't ever get there. Um, our base case is, you know, you, you, that business does a little bit better and they do develop the high speed transport business, but that happens kind of in the, you know, the 2040 timeframe. Uh, and then our bull case is everything does a little bit better and they get to the high speed transportation business even quicker. And we, we, you know, and we weight those things. Our, our bear case is 15%. Our bull case is 15%. Our base case is about 70%. And we project cash flows and we discount it back. And that, that's, how, that's how we do it. Makes sense. Uh, so, Ron, when, when you look at the total addressable market, the way the company defines it, and a lot of the analyst reports we were looking at, right now, and this is kind of a moving target, but right now, people place the space tourism, the suborbital uh, TAM, is basically there's about 2 million individuals globally with more than 10 million in net worth. So, if you book a ticket for 300,000, which is uh, those 250,000 tickets were booked a couple years ago, people assume the price is going to go up a little bit. It's about 3% of those people's net worth. Now, that 
That alone right there is enough to drive a lot of business given the cost of that flight. But do you think down the road, uh, what, what do you foresee happening to ticket prices? And do you think that they ever drop enough to where it's not just something like renting out a yacht or climbing Everest, but that mainstream consumers and ordinary, ordinary people can afford to go to space, whether it's 10, 10 years down the road? Yeah, so it, I, I, I think yes, but it's a question of when. Is it 10 years down the road? Is it 20 years down the road? You know, just, just like, you know, if you think about commercial flight or in the early days of commercial flight, it really was, you know, you, you know, the, if you will, the jet set, right? I mean, the jet set changed a lot right now. It's, you know, it, it, it's you know, everyday people fly, um, but that wasn't the case early on. I think in, you know, space flight will be the same thing. But the, I think the key question you're asking is over what time frame? And that, that's harder, that's harder to, to, to forecast, right? Um, as they get more experience with their launches, as more players get into the business, it gets more competitive. They come down cost learning curves in terms of both creating the spacecraft, building the spacecraft, their supply chain, so on and so forth. So I would expect the cost to come down over time. Um, but exactly when, it, it, it's hard to say. I think here, just as a, here, let me make a, you know, just a kind of a, a broad statement, you know, within your lifetime, yes. All right. All right. It won't be that, your kids or that's all I needed kids. To hear. In your lifetime, you'll, 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 you'll be able to afford it on some level. It might not be cheap, but it won't be 250K. That is exactly why I asked that question and why, why we wanted that question heard. I needed to know if I'm going to be able to go or not. So, Ron, I got a question. So, Paul, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya, Tia, excuse me, he is, of course, uh, the leader of Social Capital and the guy that led the SPAC uh, with Richard Branson and, and Virgin Galactic. He said uh, on an interview the other day that he thinks the gross margins of Virgin Galactic can rival that of a premier software company. So, Seth and I did a little research on the cost, but I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Do you agree with him? And how can they achieve that with such a CapEx and... Uh, and R&D heavy industry. Yeah, right. So once, once it's, how can I say, you know, it's, it's, and that was a question we wrestled with when we were building our model. Um, their, their margins can be surprisingly good. You know, once they have the aircraft built, the spacecraft built, and they're in service, a specific launch actually isn't very expensive because it's a reusable system. And their fuel is essentially kind of chopped up tires, right? I mean, um, so each launch isn't very expensive. So when you get into a, a scenario where you're starting to do multiple launches and you get some velocity in the number of launches, your margins can expand pretty, pretty meaningfully, right? So, um, you know, he, he might be very well right on that when it's all said and done. Yeah. And I was reading some reports and it looks like, uh, you know, once, if you can establish that pricing power early around the $300,000 level, it looks like operating costs per passenger, you know, including fuel and insurance and paying the pilot and everything else is more, is, is like a hundred thousand. So you're dropping 200,000 per passenger in, in gross profit. If you can actually start to do a lot of volume in terms of missions going up there, it can be a pretty profitable company. Yeah. And, and, and if you think about all that, will have a scale to it, right? So if you you have a, a small fleet of aircraft, all of a sudden your fuel costs will probably come down as you get more fuel, your operating costs come down. It's, it's just like any transportation business where you get some scale, you, your, your costs can come down. 
Gotcha. Uh, I got a follow on one for you here, Ron. Um, so George Whitesides uh, was this, the prior CEO for 10 years, and he, he's more of a technical guy. He used to work for NASA, and he knows a ton about space. And I think he's the his new title is something like the chief space officer. Uh, but they brought in a new CEO, Michael Colglazer from Disney. And a lot of people think that that means, you know, he used to run the international parks business. So what do you think uh, bringing in a, a guy from Disney and making, you know, sort of the consumer Disney part of the experience what does that mean in terms of this business well it's i think it's it, it signals a transition in the business right you know george as you as you mentioned is is more of a technical guy um he's still at the company clearly right he's heading up some of their their their, their new stuff that they're doing um and you're bringing in an executive who understands I me mean, who who knows how to market make people folks excited about the product the marketing, the ancillary products, the experience than, than the Disney folks, right? And space tourism at first is that, right? I mean, you're not, how do I say this? You, you, you start and stop at the same place, right? So it's not transportation. It's all experiential, right? So having a, an executive there who understands um, the, the experiential consumer is probably the right thing to do for where they are in their, you know, um, business model. I think uh, it reminds me of just the other day, Elon Musk posted a picture of the, of the next launch site and the next practice. And then he, he kind of showed a picture of this tiki bar and he was drinking this tiki drink. Uh, and it, apparently it's something to do. They have a tiki bar at the top that, that people can go to before they eventually get on a rocket and, and go up to outer space, which is hysterical to me. But I do want to ask you about like the long-term bull case. We hinted at that point-to-point supersonic travel and how that um, could eventually be a, a very profitable and lucrative business for them. How long do you think that is a way they, you know, I've, I've heard uh, Chamath say 10 years. I've also, I've heard other people say 20 years. How far are we till we can fly from Sydney to LA in, in 90 minutes? Yeah. Um, 10 years would be aggressive, right? I mean, if you just want to develop uh, a new commercial airplane today, you know, a new 737 as an example, um, you know, to get that all done, right. Certified today in the current environment, that would probably be seven, eight years when it's all said and done. And that's with existing technologies and things that are fully understood. So you're, you're dealing with new technologies here um, and applications of technologies in ways that are understood, but, but not in a commercial application. So my guess would be you're probably talking more like 20 years, 20 to 25 years, ultimately. Um, but you're seeing it happen, right? You're seeing companies like Arion. Uh, Arion's making a supersonic business jet. Uh, Boom is mm-hmm. making a supersonic commercial jet. Uh, so you're starting to see movement there too. And I think that's another exciting area, you know, you know topic for a different day, but, you know, high-speed flight, high-speed commercial flight is, is you know, inching along, and not just inching along, it's really kind of starting to come back, right? I mean, you know, Concorde went away, it had its issues around cost, but again, you know, because of advances in technologies, both propulsion, material science, um, it's, it's coming back, right? So I think, you know, in our, our, in our lifetime, for sure, you're going to be flying a lot faster. Places, not just for experience. 
And so when you when it comes to you know valuing the stock, so it's a six billion dollar company right now. It seems like if they're successful in space tourism, it could still go on to go up a lot. But the the thing with the hypersonic travel is that is a huge market. I mean, I heard Chamath on CNBC with Richard Branson and George Whiteside saying that right now, if you look at long range air travel, that's a three to four hundred billion dollar market. But uh, that market is growing on a secular basis as as uh, you know passenger traffic, COVID withstanding. Growth and a lot of more people enter the middle class. And then presumably you're going to have a lot of pricing power, right? Because if, if you're now taking a flight from New York to London, rather than seven hours, it's taking you 45 minutes or half an hour. Uh, you're going to be able to charge a lot more for that. So, um, you know, I, I guess two questions is the super bull case on this stock. Uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, one of your your uh, peers, Adam Jonas, talked about. He called it. It's not just. He said the opportunity is not the icing on the cake. We also see hypersonic as both the cake and the icing. And he kind of goes on to lay out this could be an eight hundred billion dollar market in two thousand forty. And if they can take ten percent of that, that's obviously eighty billion in revenue. How far fetched is that? Uh, do you think? And uh, and and. And, you know, how much upside could that give the stock way, way out if they're able to actually execute on any of that? Yeah. So, and so let's, there's a couple things, a couple points to make that are important. Um, there's going to be a market for high-speed flight, for sure. Um, when you when you look at commercial today, kind of the, the rule of thumb is COVID notwithstanding, uh, it grows at about one and a half to two times global GDP, which gets you to four to 5% growth a year. Uh, on a kegger basis. Some years a little better, some years a lot worse like this year. But in general, it's about 5% a year. That's what you get. Um, air travel passengers are very sensitive to price. You know, it's it's a market where, you know, price you know, elasticity matters a lot, right? You know, you, you drop the ticket price, more people fly. You, you, ticket prices are expensive, they don't fly. The issue Concorde ran into specifically was price, right? Flying on the Concorde was expensive. Flying hypersonically, most likely, at first and for a while, will be very expensive, right? So when you look at how big this market could be, you have to adjust for that that factor. One day, could it be that big? Sure. My guess is it's going to take some time, ultimately, to get there because the cost per ticket is going to have to get to a level where you have that much interest in in doing it. Um, so respectfully for my, you know, my... And my peer at Morgan Stanley, he might be 